0: Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. We're continuing the conversation about justice, safety, and fairness with Marika Reese and Eliza Daris. Marika is the executive director of Ubuntu Care Services, and Eliza is the co-executive director of the Minnesota Freedom Fund. And he's also, uh, he was also appointed by Governor Tim Walz to the Minnesota State Board of Public Defense. Here I am in part two of my conversation with Eliza and Marika about justice, safety, and fairness. There are places, I think, around America where they're seeing crime, you know, if it's not demonstrably worse than it used to be, we can see it much more closely than we can. People have are collecting videos of folks coming into their house, uh, hanging out on the ring camera before they take what they want. And these aren't situations uh, where law enforcement uh, – is always able to respond in the way that I think victims of crime would like. So, if I take your uh, if I take your approach, and if I think about the fact that police officers are being required to go to to handle a lot of stuff that's beyond their competence and for which they don't have resources, isn't one approach? that maybe we need to make sure that these departments are better funded so that they could maybe get training from uh, Eliza Daris and Marika Reese. Uh, Maybe the issue is training them better as opposed to removing these functions. Because part two of that, my long spiel, is things escalate so easily. Everybody has a gun. So isn't it better or safer to be prepared for the worst in, in, in a situation like that?
1: So over the past few decades, many of the law enforcement departments across the country uh, have have doubled or tripled their allocations from uh, various of the city councils. Right, doubled or tripled, and yet we're still so we still have the status quo that we uh, still have now. Things are actually getting worse. Actually, and some of your viewers might be uh, troubled to hear this, but actually, uh, in many instances, and they can just go do some simple Google research. In many instances, there are very intentional decisions by law enforcement to actually slow down on responding to calls, literally. Uh, and sometimes to artificially make things look a certain kind of way, particularly when they are in the middle of contractual negotiations with the mayor or with the city council or whatever entity they're negotiating with. That's typically when you're going to see a worsening of crime, part of the fear-mongering, right? Part of, and so our, our police department has, Almost vocally said they are slowing down their responses to calls. Right? What's
0: the reason they give?
1: There's a number of reasons that they would give. They don't feel supported. They they are upset at the the rate of the union negotiations for country. They in Minneapolis they still haven't come to terms with the contract yet, and so we're still in collective bargaining negotiations with the police union right now. And so we're still in the midst of that. But that Minneapolis police department isn't isn't a, a, a um, an outlier.
0: Mar- Marika, do you have an example? Is there a story you can share about uh, an intervention that happened in the way that you think they should happen? So, you know, I don't know if it's somebody where folks wanted to call the police and maybe you got there first and, uh, you know, took it all down a notch. Do you have a, a story that you could tell us about uh, you know just so people can see like ha- visualize what this mechanism might look like,
2: yeah, trying think uh without giving out too much client information
0: yeah, sure, 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 like you can do like super high level
2: so we're, you know you're not divulging any confidences, yeah, um there's been quite a few times, so I tend to work with um Individuals who might be facing hospitalization or who are hospitalized, who aren't necessarily in control of their own guardianship, or um, so it it gets it gets pretty wild sometimes. And I I remember an instance where an individual had been voicing that they wanted to harm someone in a similar program that wasn't very far,
1: and they wanted to go do it. And I know
2: one staff response was, "We're just going to call the police." I wasn't okay with that because one, this individual has a documented mental illness, and I felt like while they were in our care, it was up to us to see what we can do to prevent it. Because I mean, if he walked out the door and he called the police, it could have already happened. So it takes a lot of time, and we did some de-escalating. And you know, he said, "You know what? He he had a knife. He gave us a knife. He said, i 'I'm not interested in doing that anymore.'" And I mean, it, it's not simple. But I've been in several instances, and I understand that police are in, in instances that are violent and people have weapons. But it's several times where I've been, in, I've been threatened. Um, I'm also dealing with a population with severe and persistent mental illness, but de-escalation, although at the time, did work. I, I think when when police enter a situation, they're coming more so like a punitive viewpoint. They're kind of already a little on edge because, I mean, they're police. And they want to protect themselves. Um, I get that, and they're not used to dealing with this population all the time, but I've seen it do a lot more harm than good. I used to kind of oversee and work with police um, who would come in on mental health calls. And I would say probably out of the the 50 interactions I've seen, one went okay and one went very well. The other 48 sometimes ended in re- restraint, clients being imprisoned. And these are people who are being removed from mental health facilities. So you already know that they're on edge themselves and they might be facing some sort of issue. Yet the way they were approached by, by the, the police officers was very uh, antagonizing.
1: It's even controversial that hospitals and mental health institutions are even doing that in the first place, calling law enforcement to you know come to their institutions to to bring that level of response to individuals that are already basically hospitalized.
0: It seems then that the answer would be to better train law enforcement officials to respond to these. Situations. I mean, you know, you've got, there's a range of responses that you can have to any situation. Why, you know, as I shared with you uh, more directly offline, why I'm suspicious and nervous about calls to, you know, uh, replace police departments is because to my mind, if you have somebody show up and they're equipped with a variety of responses, they're equipped with the listen, you know, let's sit down and talk about it. They can do everything from that to the using force if and when it becomes necessary. If you can get that in one responder, then it seems to me to be the most efficient. So, part of why I was I have always questioned the, defund, the defunding movement. and you know to your point, uh, Eliza, maybe it's more adequately or accurately, at least in the Minneapolis context, thought of as a reallocation movement. But part of why I've been uh, I have questions about it is because I feel like you're talking about people who are putting themselves on the line and who we are asking to walk into violent situations. Train them better. Give them a better set of tools and resources. Give them access to people like the two of you on the front end so they can go into these situations better equipped. What do you guys think about that?
2: I think partnering might be an option, but I mean, the police are an automatic trigger for some people in communities. So whether they intend to or not, sometimes they make things worse automatically just by being
1: there. Yeah, and uh, I, mean, I mean, training hours have increased significantly. If this isn't a, a situation, and the, there needs to be a total reimagination. We can't train our way out of this. We can't. We can't allocate more resources to law enforcement our way out of this. We really do need to step back and really look at how are we approaching. With, let's not say policing, but public safety. What does public safety mean? Like you, you use another example that you asked with uh, uh, Marika about. You know, someone was harmed, and then you had the person who did the harm. What does it look like when you have those two come together and actually have a conversation? They call that the restorative justice approach, right? particularly difficult. Uh, Think about it like this. When I was a kid, right? Let's say, I don't know, I I got into a fight with the neighbor kid, right? I hit them and I ran away. If mom was to come to me and was to say, I'm going to take you across the street in front of all my other little friends and make you apologize to the other friend who I hurt versus I'm going to give you a whooping? Many of us, particularly young kids like me, would have taken the whooping long before we walked <laughs> the street. And then instead, I mean, I, even if I did it, I would be looking down at my shoes and sheepishly mumble love. sorry. You know what I mean? It's, like, it's an incredibly difficult thing to look someone who you have harmed in the eyes, the humanity of someone who you have harmed in the eye and say, I'm sorry. And for that person to then accept or embrace or not accept or embrace that apology, communally, what does something like that do as opposed to snatching that person out of the community? That person has now disappeared into some dark hole somewhere for a period of time. No one says anything at all to the person who was victimized, who who was harmed. No conversation is happening across any of those boards at all. This person eventually gets out of that dark hole and is back inside of that community. How is that creating public safety? So when we're saying let's take a step back and let's like reimagine, like what does a reimagining look like? That's not saying let's dump more resources into the same old same old. What if we throw more dollars at it? Like how many problems have you have you came across in which people just try to throw more dollars at it? Did that ever solve the problem? Right. So it's like, what if we take a step back and really look at, is this approach sensible? Does it really make sense? Because law enforcement, again, police officers do not prevent crimes. They'll tell you this. Like, we don't prevent crimes. But what does prevent crimes is some of this more front-end stuff that we're talking about, like mental health services investing in that, education investing in that, social services investing in that. Economic development, investing in that, these are the proven factors that can really impact. Even if you talk about something like recidivism, what can stop someone from recidivating? Education is the primary proven factor. The more education someone gets, the lower the probability of them recidivating. That is one of the most known proven factors to preventing someone from having a recidivism incident in their lives. We all know this. So, would it make sense to invest more dollars in education inside of prisons, for instance, if we know that there is a causal relationship between education and recidivism? But what we have been seeing is a steady cutting of that type of proven factor to, to impact public safety, to impact what, is, what does public safety mean and what does it really look like? I'll, I'll, I'll say to you, uh, uh, Judge Acker, that. Just
0: Tanya, just Tanya.
1: I don't think you (laughs) Tanya. I don't feel comfortable saying that. We have seen the overinvestment, the ballooning of, of the budgets for police departments, and what have we had to show for it? Do you feel any safer? Did your response come any quicker? I'll say this. Look at where they were resourced in 2010 versus where they were resourced in 2020. If the budget continuously increased, have such a slow response? They they, they they didn't they didn't defund them. They continue to fund them. So I'm saying let's take a step back and let's say let's reimagine this. How could we have a better approach to our public dollars and our public safety? This is all we're saying.
0: We I uh, I think it's a conversation that is important to continue because. You know, some of what you said, um I have a little bit of a reaction to. The idea the well let me take a step back because when I think about what makes me personally feel unsafe, it's just sort of the notion for me it's the idea that uh people and I, you know, maybe I'm sounding old, but it's like these days, you know, people feel like they don't have to live by any rules but their own. But I really do feel that. And I think that it is worth you, you know, using it in the uh, making it a these days uh, kind of statement, because these days we can see it up close and personal in ways that we haven't before. and It's across the spectrum. Uh, People riot and defile the United States Capitol, and then they have defenders in Congress. Those folks thought they could do whatever they wanted, and there are some people who are defending them um, who think it's perfectly legitimate uh, to normalize um, what was essentially a coup attempt. Down the street, you know, you could have somebody smashing and grabbing at a mall. And with respect, maybe there's some trauma there, but lots and lots and lots of people are dealing with trauma. These days, the world is traumatized. People are depressed, they are on edge, they're holding on to the little bit they've got. Um, I believe in restorative justice as a concept. I don't know that it works all the time in every situation. Uh, I'm not sure. To your example, you know, that if I I saw a video of somebody chasing somebody down who tried to steal a, uh, this grant, this 87-year-old woman's purse, and I was thinking, like, you know what, if that had been my mother that somebody and somebody was snatching her bag, I don't know if I need to hear his sorry. I don't know if I want to hear sorry. I might just want him to be incarcerated. Maybe not, but, um,
1: but you tell know what? us. Uh, yeah, she yeah, might. please. She might. Want to? One of the primary questions. Did, did you meet
0: my mother? Did you meet my mother at that you met my mother that night? But my mother might say, mean, you gotta mean, <laughs> my say, "You got to do some time." My mom would say, "You got to do some time," and then we could talk about it.
1: But she <laughs> might have a question of why? Why did you do this to me? She might have that question, and she may want to have that question answered. I don't know, right? But a lot of people who are impacted, they do want to know why? Why did you do this? They want to know something about the person who has impacted them, right? What made you choose me? Why did you do this? Tell me about you. You. A lot of people have that question of why. I mean, that is a, that's one of the most basic, uh, questions of humanity, really. Why? Right? And so, but a lot of the times, that why is shut it down by the criminal justice system. No one cares about why something happened. It's what happened and who did it. Period. That's it. And then you're gone. Right, and then everyone else is left with that hole, and it's not filled in any kind of way. Um, and so, it, you know, restorative justice might not be the answer in every last single instance, but it's a tool. But but law enforcement responding to every last single instance also isn't the answer, but it is a tool. And so, what I'm saying is, let's look at the array of tools, and let's let's not act like there's a one there's a one size fit all. I mean, that is. That is an, an antiquated way of thinking. I mean, we have to reimagine a new way of living life, of moving forward, because the old system ain't serving none of us at all.
2: We've actually had this conversation before in a different sense. And I um he asked me, well, you know, what would you do as someone I say, you know, depending on the crime, I, I I may or may not want that person incarcerated. I would wanna do a policy. But I want to see like how are they how are they implemented back in society and what can be done for this person, not to this person before and with this person for them to so maybe change their ways. Because even if someone harms me, I don't want them doing it to anybody else. Yeah. And Them going to prison for two or three years to getting back out isn't going to stop them from doing it to someone
0: else. I, I, as I said, this is an important conversation that must continue. And one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast in the first place is that I think it's really necessary that we have a space where we can toss around an idea, um, even an idea where, you know, we're not all uh, seeing everything in exactly the same way, uh, because we've got to figure out how to do things better. So on that note, and before we go, uh, you all are sitting in, you know, you're in one part uh, of this conversation about justice and people who uh, may be thrust into the system because of mental illness or or trauma or, or, or something else. How do you intend, and you know it's january twenty twenty two when this comes out we're in the beginning of a new year um, I like to be optimistic even when all signs point uh to the contrary, and I don't think there's any better time of year uh to be optimistic than in the beginning, so as we all sit here now and you know and the The conversation around this issue has become so divisive, so polarized. Everybody's like caricaturing, you know, one side or or, or the other. How do we have this discussion and, and move toward actual changes that will serve everybody better? uh, given where we are now, because right now, like it, it's hard to even have the conversation, you know, people sometimes, uh, and I'm, you guys certainly aren't, the two of you aren't saying this, but sometimes you hear from one side, you know, people think that all police officers are horrible and bad and necessarily unresponsive. And then on the other hand, you have people, uh, who believe that those who, uh, want reform and fairness, uh, are lawless and, and don't care about safety, which is another uh, cartoonish way of presenting the problem. How do we take this conversation forward? Either of you can be positive and optimistic. I,
1: I, think, I think that um, well, we have to be. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't believe, you know, if I didn't have hope, if I didn't, you know, see the signs of growth and development. First of all, crime has continuously gone down over the past decade, you know, so it's, it's not like we, we might be in a, in a a slight uptick right now, but there's a lot of situational reasons why there might be an uptick uh, in crime right now. But like we got to also take a step back from the hyperbole. Right. You know, we're not at. 1980s, 1990s level of crime, there has been a continuous decline. And so people also got to begin speaking truth into like the the frames that are being created so that we can live within the frame of reality. And so one is taking the temperature down and, you know, really trying not to speak uh, in hyperbole to say all police are this or to say all people who, you know, are impacted are that or to say all people who commit crimes are this. Is is extreme language and it's gonna make you look at people in extreme kind of ways and it voids all humanity, the humanity of the officer, the humanity of the community member, the, the humanity of the person who might have caused harm. There's so there's no humanity inside of that. And so to me, the most critical thing to do is to step back and to put humanity inside. Because there's humanity all across the board, and to talk to people as human beings and as people, right? And to be people-centered and people-focused. I think once we really began to be people-centered and people-focused, we're not talking about agendas. We're not We're not talking about, you know, movement space. We're not talking about this. We're talking about people. We're talking about community. We're talking about us. We're talking about all of us. I think once we really start to, to lower the temperature down and have real and meaningful conversation, I have no agenda. You have no agenda. The only thing that we're trying to do is live better lives. To me, I think all people, I think most people I should say, want to live a good life, want to be safe, want to be thriving, and want to be healthy. I think most people want that now. You know, some people have an easier on-ramp to that type of a life than other people. But I think most people are good, and most people generally want to do the right thing. So how do we go and have conversations with one another in which we are discoursing on the 90% that we agree upon, right? And not just focusing on the 10% where we're not in agreement. We might can get to that later. But, heck, we agree on, on 90% of the stuff. So why can't we walk down those roads?
2: I'm a big fan of meeting people where they're at. And part of what my company does is consulting, technical assistance. we go into to, uh, right now we're working with higher ed and some government orgs and police departments. And we kind of do an assessment, meet people where they're at, and talk about you know, implementing possible changes and what they think needs to be changed. I used to be a teacher and I know if you involve someone in the learning, they're more likely to want to do it and to learn from it.
0: Meeting people where they're at, Marika, I think is uh, key to all of this. And, you know, to the point that both of you just made, this is an issue uh, that is really getting a lot of support from across every aisle. I mean, you've got people who really care about, you've got a lot of fiscal conservatives Uh, for instance, who are really getting behind the notion of criminal justice reform because it costs a heck of a lot uh, to incarcerate as many people as we are uh, for uh, as long as we do. Um, So there's an opportunity here, I think, to make new allies, build new partnerships, and that's really how we're going to come up with, with new and better ideas. I'm very, very grateful to the two of you for giving me so much time and tossing all of this around, uh, as I said at the outset, I was really, really impressed and honored to have had the chance uh, to meet you both. And uh, you know, you're, you're you're powerful people, and you're trying to change things and make things better. So let's just all let's all come up with some new, better ideas together. Uh, thank you for being here with me today. I, I really I, I'm I appreciate your time. And happy new year.
1: Happy Love New you. Year to you too! Thank you so much for inviting us on. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure to be part of that initial panel with you, and it was even more of a pleasure to join uh, you two ladies as part of this discussion right here. It was uh, it was a really great and spirited conversation.
0: And thank you, Marika, again. Uh, keep doing the good work that you're doing. You know, you're in a position to help all of us learn to think broadly, think more broadly, and think bigger. So. We'll all keep our thinking caps on. Good luck to the two of you. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you. Thank do.
0: Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time.